You might have heard the story uh, before there was transatlantic flight, people had to take ships. And there was a man in Europe that desperately needed to get to the United States, and so he saved every penny he could and bought that ticket to get across the Atlantic in a cruise ship. And when he got on board, he was happy to do it, but he had a problem. He was now broke. He didn't have any money for food, but the solution was he had this one suitcase to bring his possessions and didn't have any and filled it with cheese and crackers. And it's a two- to three-week journey, and he figured, you know what? On this, I'll be able to make it. He felt lucky to just be on board. He was going to the United States. It was going to happen. And at mealtime, at mealtime, everyone would go into these giant, large, extravagant dining halls where they would have these buffets of gourmet food, all you can eat. And during those times, three times a day, he would go off to his room or go to some corner and he would nibble on those cheese and crackers. He could smell that food, though. He heard people complaining as they'd come out of those, those grand hallways about overeating complaining that they might have put on too much weight and they'll start their diet when they get to the States. He would dream at night of these meals. He could smell in his dreams the lavish meals that he was missing out on. And then after a, a, a week or so passed, somebody noticed and brought it to his attention and said, I, I couldn't help but observe that when it's mealtime, you wander off and I've seen you. I've seen you nibble on that crackers over there. They have some cheese in it. Is that where your protein's coming from? And he was found out. His poverty was realized. He was flushed and ashamed and humiliated. And he said, yeah, that's it. All I had money for was a ticket. And so I've been just making my way across the ocean. And the man said, has no one told you Did you not read the ticket that you have? The meals are included. They've been there all along for you. You paid for the ticket. You paid for your meals. It's all inclusive. And the man's like hanging his head, right? Sometimes the point is it's a metaphor. It's a parable. Sometimes you and I, we don't know what we have and we don't use. We don't enjoy what we already own. We, this is the case with the gospel. This is the case with the truth of what is found in, in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When Paul talks about the gospel, the life and death and the resurrection of Jesus, he says this, the unsearchable riches of Christ. And today, we're going to search those riches. We're going to find out so much more than maybe what you have defined the gospel. It is far more lavish than you might have known or imagined, and it's, it's been there the whole time. Now, to be clear, to understand what the gospel is, gospel means good news. This is the good news in a single sentence, that Jesus died for our sins and was raised for our righteousness. It's a simple sentence. It is layers deep. It is lavish in its meaning. We're going to look at three. I'll give them to you in a kind of an oversight, and then we'll look closer. In the context of, of guilt and innocence, it means this, that in the death of Jesus Christ, he paid for the violations that we committed against the holy nature of the righteousness of Yahweh God, the creator of all things. 
And in his resurrection, that was proof that that payment was full, that justice had prevailed. In the category of, of, of shame and honor, the, the death of Jesus Christ is him taking on our shame for the choices that we've made, the shame that was brought upon God and the shame that was brought upon us. Jesus takes that shame. And his resurrection, that, that was an expression of you and I inherit. If we have faith in that, we, have, we inherit his honor and his status. We are adopted into his royal lineage, and we are restored to the community, the community in heaven and the community of the church. In the category, in the subject of fear and power, we live in two realms, and many people that live in, in the church, people live in this life, have been taken over. What once was something that served us, now we serve it. We are enslaved to passions or thoughts or sin. And the death of Jesus Christ, that's Jesus putting himself in subjection to death itself, the worst of all slave owners. And his resurrection was proof that, that, that death had no power over Jesus. His resurrection was to show that he had conquest of death and to give and qualify us to receive his spirit so we might have power. It also was to give us the ability to live a life without fear. We have power and we are fearless. That's the lavish nuances of the gospel. Let's look closer. Let's zoom in and see the fullness of, of what is availed to us. In the context of innocence and guilt, it's, it's well, here, my story is probably similar to your story. In 1980, I woke up because the phone rang and my girlfriend, soon to be, very soon to be my ex-girlfriend, called to break up with me because of the things that I had done the night before. And I hung up the phone and I was on my hands and knees and I just began to weep bitterly. Not just for that event and the consequences of those decisions of just a few hours earlier, but because it was as though all the bills that I had accrued came due that morning. I, for the last 20 or so years, almost every decision was made into my interest to my gain. And it, it's an act of God's spirit to convict a person of sin, and he was working that day. And this, this, this accumulation of bills, I, I realized that I couldn't pay this. I couldn't talk my way out of this. This was something that was far surpassed anything that I had fully appreciated up to that point. Again, the God, God's spirit was convicting me of this. And, and a year previous to that, a friend of mine had told me about the forgiveness that came in Christ. And I said this, not interested, I don't need it. I did that morning. That morning I got to see who I really was. And I read these sentences. In him, we have redemption through his blood, through his death, the forgiveness of our sins. God made us alive in Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. On that floor, on my hands and knees, boom, I was born again, born from above, made alive, new. 
I got up and I walked down the hallway and a friend saw me and he said, you look different. You look happy. <laughs> you look lighter. He said that. You look lighter. Here's justification. God is perfect. He is holy and he is just. In his righteousness, he cannot allow sin to go unpaid for. In his justice, justice demands a payment. And God, because of his holiness, because of his righteousness, he can't just forgive people. Because all of creation would cry out, you're not righteous. There's a debt that is due and you let it go. And so God requires eternal punishment for our sins. The story of the gospel is that Jesus steps into that. He takes on the wrath of what we owe towards God's holiness. He appeases the anger of God's justice. He pacifies the rage that is towards us. That is why the crucifixion, the death of Jesus Christ, is so violent. Socrates was given hemlock, and he drifted off into death. That's a way to take someone's life in that culture. That is not what Jesus experienced. He was beaten to the point of beyond recognition. His back was opened up, torn apart. He was crowned with thorns. His, his, the crucifixion, uh, crucifixion experience itself is intentionally prolonging the agony and the death so that all of created things, the invisible and the visible, could say, yeah, that's enough. That debt's paid. So here's the invitation. You want to be free? Free of debt? Free of guilt? You want to be happy? You want to be lighter? You want to have innocence that you've never experienced in this life? I'm talking about the innocence of Adam and Eve before their fall. That's what's grounded, granted to us in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the context of forgiveness. You trust that nothing you could do could get you to that place in the presence of God because of his holiness. You trust that Jesus did all of it and it was enough. That's the gospel in the area of forgiveness. The next thing I want to talk about is shame and honor. Shame and honor. You, you missed it. You're, you had to have been here 15 years. We had the perfect family attending here about 15 years ago. And if there was any question about it, you could just ask the mother. She would tell you she has the perfect family. Four compliant children. They always won every Bible memory little game we ever played. Everybody did what they were told. The husband was compliant. He did what was, if everyone did what they were told, then mom looked great. She had the perfect family. Now, the problem was they kind of stayed a little too long because the children left the house. And I got I to hand it to them. They were very creative in their expression of anger in their rebellion to their mother's attempt of sovereignty. And they went literally everywhere and morally everywhere. Their lives were ruined. 
And, and the mother became ashamed. And shame and pride are like, I don't know, on the same, just different sides of the same coin. And as proud as she was, that's how humiliated she became. And she was in despair. And so she quit coming to church and disconnected from all of her friends and, I, and isolated herself in her dishonor. And there were talks. We tried to bring her back, but she wouldn't come. And do you know why? Because she would not enjoy the lavish riches of the gospel. She was forgiven, but she still felt ashamed. Eating crackers and cheese when a banquet was available to her. Here's the problem with shame. Shame is especially insidious in the context of forgiveness and the gospel because honor needs community. Shame isolates you from the thing that will make you well. It's in community that your honor is expressed and reinforced and reminded, the things that the gospel brings to us. And she wasn't applying that aspect of the power of the gospel to her life. And because she wasn't applying that, people in her community couldn't tell her because she took herself away from that. That's, the, that's the, the nature of shame. It takes you from the place you need to go. In Eastern cultures, you know, shame is the figure of speech losing face, right? Uh, in, 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 in Thai, shaming, the word shaming literally translates as tearing a person's face off. Wow, that's graphic and ugly. If you've seen Muay Thai fighting, it's graphic and ugly. They look like they're trying to do that to each other. Shame is a social disease. In our culture, it would be not Thai fighting, but it would be, boy, there's a lot of life that between 7th and 10th grade that actually is true to everything. But, so in 7th and 10th grade, you, you eat at this one table, right? You eat lunch at this one table with your friends. That's your community. That's the place you, that it's safe and you're accepted and those sorts of things. Now, you go, to, you go to gym class, something happens, you're absolutely embarrassed and humiliated. You feel like the entire school knows about it. It's lunchtime, you go to lunch, and you don't want to sit at that table because of the, the loss of honor, and you think, here's the thing, you think they don't want you at that table, but they do. They, you know, they want you back, but you don't go there. You feel like they're rejecting you. Now, they might be rejecting you if you were at the mean girl's table, and that's what they do, and you shouldn't have been at that table anyway, so blah, 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 blah. Anyway, <laughs> if you were at a good table with good friends, they were going to take you in. You see how that works? See how shame keeps you from the community that could be part of the healing process? That's how it happens at church. This, this, this happens at church. You get in trouble. Yeah, that happens around here. But there's no shame involved. There's no rejection of the person. And, and that person quite often does not come to church or they quit going to the things that they were part of the community to. And you know why? because they're not applying the lavish riches of the gospel in the context of shame and honor. In their, in their mind, they're thinking, they don't want me to come. Did you see the way they looked at me? They weren't looking at you. They were looking past you. They were looking at a friend behind you. And, and, and you have the, the ability somehow to twist someone's invitation to join you into some kind of a humiliating 
way of pushing you away. And sometimes it's, here's why. Because the pride and honor you were running on before was your pride and your honor. And when that's lost, you don't have anything. And instead, you could, you could switch. You could, you could be running on the honor and the pride that we receive from inheritance, from being adopted, that's given as a gift to us, and that can't be lost. You see, they're forgiven, but they, these people, they don't understand these passages. Look, in love, Christ predestined us to be adopted as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. You're no longer foreigners or aliens to the lunch table, to church, right? But you're fellow citizens of God's people and members of God's household. You're part of God's house. You're one of his children. You're heirs, co-heirs with him. There's something about the shame aspect of the gospel. It is diabolical because it keeps you from the community that's part of the healing process. There's been studies done, multiple studies on, on addiction addictions and how people are healed from addictions. And what they'll say is, multiple studies will say, honor is the key to overcoming addictions and community. They have to, people have to be connected in communities to receive that honor. And, and these, there's like five of the TED Talks. You just look them up on, on addictive issues and they'll say recovery, connected community is required for recovery. And what, what's happened is people don't go to those communities. And do you know why they don't go to those communities? Because in the issues of recovery, there's shame and embarrassment and loss of face or loss of reputation. These, these ideas of disgrace and cultures, countries, and even, you know, people groups that take the shame out of recovery, they have the highest and the most successful recovery rates of addiction because they take the shame out so that people can go to their groups so that people can enjoy receiving honor. Here's the three phases of a, of, of a recovery group. I'll just tell you this, how, how it happens. You can just see it happen in people's lives. And, and since, since some of you haven't been in a recovery program, this is what happens. Okay? You have to introduce yourself. You have to admit that you are in recovery of some kind. And you have to say what your name is, and then you have to say what your thing is, and then everybody else says, hi, whatever your name is. So we're going to do that. I'm going to say, hi, uh, my name is Matt, and I'm an act, and you're going to say, hi, hi, Matt. Okay? All right? Okay. I'm going to trust you, okay? Here's phase one. Here it is, phase one. Guy finally gets to go to a recovery group, and here it goes. Hi, my name is Matt, I'm in a recovery. <laughs> right, yeah. So I'm just mumbling. I, I'm, I'm, my name is Matt, and I'm an addict, and I'm forgiven, but very much ashamed. I once was very proud of my life and the honor that I had. I was able to manage my success and my entertainment. And then I did bad. And then I am bad. Phase one. Phase two, you say this enough, it starts to like, okay, I get it. I get it now. Phase two is, hi, I'm Matt, and I'm an addict. I'm at right. Yeah, that's, it's, that's who I am. That's my identity. That's what I do. It, I, I, 
I'm getting used to just being called this, and I'm going to make the most of this. Used to be something else, but now I'm at the attic. I'm going to, I'm going to embroider the scarlet letter A on my chest, and that way everybody will know who I am. I'm just going to make the best of what I have. And then, and then I see a passage that's been there all along. Jesus endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat on the, at the right hand of the throne of God, the place of honor. And the scripture says, anyone who trusts in Jesus will never be put to shame. It has given them, I have, I have given them the glory. This is Jesus. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they might be one. They're going to have one thing in common, the glory I gave them as a gift, glory and honor. That's who I am. Phase three of the addiction process. Hi, my name is Matt, and I'm an addict. Yeah, that's, you know, I've inherited the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am co-heirs. I am adopted into his sonship. That's who I am. I'm part of a royal priesthood, and I'm an addict like I, hi, I'm Matt, I'm allergic to strawberries. I love strawberries, but I can't eat them. Hi, I'm Matt, I'm night blind. I can't drive at night. I wish I could drive at night, but I can't drive at night. There's no shame in this. There's no identity attached to this. That's not who I am. That's just a thing that I'm going to have to limp through the rest of my life with. Yeah, that's the third phase. That's when a person says, I get it. This is the lavish rich, richness of the gospel that I didn't understand or apply. That's why the crucifixion was so humiliating. That's why the death of Jesus had to be so dishonorable. Socrates, given hemlock with his friends, they laughed and praised him. They hugged him as he drifted off into death. That's not what Jesus did. No, no. They put him out there as a public spectacle. They spit on him. They gave him a crown of thorns because they were mocking him for thinking he was a king, and he was. They made him drag his cross through Jerusalem naked. They put him on that tree naked. Is that shameful enough for you? Is that humiliating enough to take on all of whatever your embarrassments might be? Are you tired of eating crackers? That's why he did that. So that we might enjoy the fullness of the gospel. That's, that, do you carry that shame? Are you ashamed to attend a Sunday school class or celebrate recovery, the very community that can bring the message of the gospel at this perspective into your life? <laughs> you know why you're afraid of going there or ashamed of going there? Because you're not applying this, this lavish riches of the gospel. Here's the invitation. You might understand that you're forgiven, but you're still like in phase one or phase two in this recovery, and you, you, you assume people 
think or say the worst about you. You can somehow do the judo and twist an invitation into a rejection, spin a compliment into some kind of a criticism. How about we put a stop to that? How about no more crackers and cheese? How about the banquet of this gospel? How about the fullness of honor and dignity, grace that comes, that, it, that gives us glory? Last, fear and power. We live in two realms. There's a spiritual realm and there's a physical realm. And there's many Christians, they attend church regularly, but they are in submission to an oppression that they have given permission to take over their lives. It starts off as an emotion sometimes, a response to something that happens to them, and then becomes a thought, way of thinking, and then it becomes an obsession and then a compulsion. And then it's all-encompassing who they are and what they do. They are now enslaved by this thing. You, you can be at a park on a beautiful day. The birds are singing and there's a kite flying and you're pushing your child on the swing and you can't hear them giggle over the raging anger that's going on inside of your mind. That's a power that anger. And it's bigger than you. And it's telling you the way to live. You baptize it. You say it's righteous anger because something that happened to you way back when or some kind of sorrow that now has taken over your life. But that's not it. Because if it were righteous sorrow or holy anger, it wouldn't be interrupting your day this much. It wouldn't be changing your blood chemistry. But the Bible says this about the gospel. And having disarmed the powers and the authorities, disarmed the powers and the authorities, the spiritual realm, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. For he rescued us from the dominion of darkness, and he brought us into the kingdom of his son whom he loves. You know what you need to get over this? submission, slavery to thoughts or sins. You know what you need? You need a miracle. You need an act of God in your life to intervene because the envy and jealousy that has become compulsive to you, your will, your strong will, and your discipline, it ain't working, is it? No, sir, it's not. And you know why you're still stuck? Because you are not applying the lavish riches of the gospel. It's written right there on your ticket. It's always been there. You've owned it. You just don't apply it. You've chosen to eat crackers and cheese instead of this beautiful banquet that he has for us. And it is all you can eat. The gospel is power. That's why the resurrection was such a graphic display of power. The ground shook at his death, right? His death and resurrection. The ground shook. The rocks split. The, the curtain at the temple between the Holy of Holies, it tore. It's huge, thick. From the top down, God tore. God tore that curtain. 
dead were seen, raised, walking around. Why was, the, why was the death of Jesus Christ such a powerful display? Because it was a conquest of death. It was, it was God showing off what, what could not contain the righteousness of his son. The resurrection? Oh, the resurrection. That's just God gloating. That's just him trash-talking. That's saying, that's all you got? That's it, death? Is that all? Okay, then. That's the power that's displayed. The gospel is a truth of deliverance. Of, of, of del- the gospel makes us qualified because of the purity of forgiveness and the honor that we receive. It qualifies us to receive the Holy Spirit, to dwell in our hearts and call it home. We're sealed in there. He, he seals the door, the Spirit does, so he can stay in there and nothing can get away. Not only that, the power that comes in the Spirit, he gives us the gift of living a fearless life. There's no reason to fear. Why? What is the, we've conquered death and all the dominion that's involved with that. Listen, this is how, this is, I love this. This is how Paul like signs off and says goodbye everybody in the book of Romans. This is what he says. He says, now, the, now may the God of peace, right? That's a happy God. May the God of peace who will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. Let me review. May the God of peace soon crush the skull of Satan underneath your feet. You have your foot on his throat and skull. You hear the crackle? That's you crushing the skull of Satan. Who wants a piece of that? And after he says that, he says this. This is what I love about it. He says, uh, now the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. This guy, oh, okay. Well, I was, we were crushing Satan's head at, like a two, two words ago here. Like, yeah, may the God of peace who will soon crush Satan underneath your heel, may the, you know, peace be with you. That's what the invitation is, an invitation to power. Paul was asked, you know, what message he was delivering to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. He was asked in the book of Acts. He's like, hey, you're going out, you're telling the gospel, but what are you telling? And he said, I'm telling about the lavish riches that everyone has. The ticket is filled with all sorts of assets and attributes, and I'm going to tell them about all of those things. He says this, to open their eyes and turn them from the darkness to light and from the power of Satan to the power of God. I'm going to tell them about the power of the gospel. And then he says, so that they might receive forgiveness of sins innocence instead of guilt and place and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Jesus, a place of honor. Do you want the gospel? Do you want to receive the gospel? Some of you maybe have never received the forgiveness that comes in the gospel, the gospel of from guilt to righteousness. That's a gift, not by your works, but by the works of Jesus Christ. That's where you put your trust. Some of you might need to receive today the gospel of honor because you've been living with shame. 
because you were burning the engine, your engine you were burning on was on your honor, and that was lost, and now you live in shame. Shouldn't have been there in the first place. Now we receive as a gift inheritance, adoption, sonship, daughtership. Maybe you should receive today the gospel of honor. And some of you, you might need to receive the gospel of power because you're tired of getting kicked around and shoved around, and the win-loss record is just demoralizing. I'm going to ask you maybe to consider this. We're going to have our prayer counselors up here after the last song, maybe to come down and make it memorable. Tell them what you want to receive from the Lord Jesus Christ as a gift. Righteousness, honor, power. Have them pray for you. Have a member of the community bless you with that. Ultimately, the question is this. Is there anyone here that is tired of eating cheese and crackers? There's a banquet. There's a life. There's a fullness of things. And you probably already have it. Let's be a church that lives in the lavish riches of this gospel. Let me pray. For those seeking forgiveness and righteousness, God's holy writ has declared this. It has been written in perfection and kept that way. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Living with perpetual blush, always feeling shame. Might I remind you what Peter said? And he was speaking for the Spirit when he said, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for those who believe. But you are a chosen race. You are part of a royal priesthood. You're in a holy nation, a community of holy people, a people of his own possession. Once you were not his people, but now you're God's people. Receive that honor that glory. And for for those that require and are desperate for power, in Deuteronomy, Moses writes, O sovereign Yahweh, you have begun to show your servant your greatness and your strong hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth that can do the deeds and the mighty works that you do? You are the ruler of all things, created seen and unseen. Lord, I'd ask that your spirit would excite our spirit, that we might receive and experience the fullness of the lavish riches of the gospel that we trust in. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.